You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. My name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here. And uh, I am delighted that we get to do this thing together called church. I'm going to ask, if you would please, just very briefly, to pray with me one more time. Father, you are God, and you are good. Help. Amen. Well, it was May of 1915. It was World War I, and things were going badly for the Allies. There was a coalition of... Canadian soldiers together with a troop of French soldiers and they were fighting, fighting in an area of Belgium in what was called the Battle of Ypres. And it was a horrible, horrible stint where these Canadian soldiers and French soldiers were trying to hold the line against the advancing Germans. And it was the first time in history that a, a, a large army used chemical warfare against another. And for two solid weeks... The Germans dumped chlorine gas on the Canadians and on the French. A horrible, abysmal way to die. Like drowning on dry land. And the Canadians and the French held the line for two solid weeks. There was a doctor who was a surgeon named John McRae, who right next to him, his best friend was killed on May 2nd. And so on May 3rd, John McRae himself, who though he was a doctor, decided he needed to be in the trenches fighting as a soldier with his comrades. The next day he said, I will do the funeral. I will actually put him in the ground. And Sergeant then, John McRae, wrote the eulogy and he wrote a poem as a sergeant to those who had died and to those who would die. It's a famous poem. I'm not much of a Uh, poetry kind of guy. Those of you that know me can probably figure that out. Not one for lyric and verse that much, unless it's from the 80s and was sung by somebody with a mohawk. But still, this poem has always been perhaps my favorite. It is called In Flanders Fields by John McRae. And it goes like this. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow. Between the crosses, row on row that mark our space and in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below, we are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, To you from failing hands we throw. The torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Flanders is that area in Belgium around and near Antwerp where so many of these soldiers died. And John McRae noticed that any time they would bury someone, that soon thereafter, these red poppies would bloom nearby. It's a poem about fighting for what's worth fighting for and how death finally merely brings peace. Having fought the good fight, 
death brings peace. It's a poem from those who have fought the good fight to those who must still fight on. It's a poem from the dead who say, We fought, and now with failing hands we pass the torch to you that you will fight on as well. Which is why this morning we get to start a new sermon series I've been looking forward to for a very long time. We're beginning the book of 2 Timothy. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, you might say, is Paul's Flanders Fields. Take away from this morning, we're going to spend just a little bit of time together as we read through the first chapter of 2 Timothy. And Paul's going to charge Timothy, he's going to charge us. And the big idea goes like this, fight for the faith. Lean forward, intentionally engage, deliberately delve into, fight for the faith. 2 Timothy, it is Paul's final letter before he dies. Let me just give a little bit of a, of a background and an on-ramp into what Paul's doing with 2 Timothy. The last letters that Paul ever writes are 1 Timothy, and then the book of Titus, and then the last thing he will ever write is 2 Timothy. Like every New Testament book, all of them, this book makes you decide against your default human tendency and belief. Every New Testament book does this. Every single New Testament book makes you decide against a default human presupposition. Just to give you some examples, the book of Romans absolutely violates the default human tendency to assume that right standing with God comes from me doing more, that it's found within, that I have to do, I have to achieve, I have to accomplish, I have to, atur- I, I, I have to earn. The Apostle Paul says, good luck with that, never going to happen. Grace is an alien implement that gives you, by grace, the righteousness of God. You can never achieve it on your own. Romans violates the human assumption that we can somehow be good enough on our own merits. We cannot, we have not, we will not. Corinthians is a book that addresses the human assumption that wisdom of the world works. It does not. The book of Corinthians violates our assumption that the wisdom of this world will work in our lives. Paul says, no, there is godly wisdom and there is worldly wisdom. God's word, God's wisdom is not synonymous with common sense. And so that book violates our assumption about what wisdom is. The book of Galatians, it violates our default human assumption about what spirituality is. Our default spirituality assumption is that spirituality is achieved by morality and law and behavior. And every single religion in the world, save one, is built on that premise that I have to do more, to earn more, to achieve and obtain God's favor. That's works righteousness. And the book of Galatians has Paul very angry saying, no, it is a work of the Spirit. God does it. And so it violates our assumptions about things. And in the same way, 1 and 2 Timothy violates some human assumptions. It's in the canon of Scripture for a reason. Now, Paul writes nine letters to seven different churches. Nine different letters to seven different churches. You know, there's Romans, there's Corinthians, there's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the Thessalonians. And each one of those nine letters to those seven churches, he's telling the church who they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to believe. And that's why they're in the canon of Scripture. 
Paul is saying this is what it means to be the church. But the three letters that he writes, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are called pastoral epistles. And they are written to the leaders of the church primarily. These churches are made up of third-generation Christians. None of the people in these churches to whom Paul writes were public recipients of Jesus' earthly ministry. None of them had seen Jesus in person. Some of them had never even heard directly from an apostle. They're just like us. They didn't get it from Jesus. They didn't get it from an apostle. They got it from somebody who got it from an apostle who got it from Jesus. They're third-generation Christians just like us in that sense. This is why when Jesus tells Thomas in the Gospel of John, you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who have believed and have not seen. In other words, the church age is going to continue for a while and there will be a whole mess of folks that are going to be believers in the church who will have never seen me and probably will never have seen an apostle. They have to stand on the teaching of the apostles. And so, 2 Timothy is immensely important because it challenges what we would assume, by default, what the church should be doing. All of us have an assumption, perhaps. We come right out of the box as human beings as to what the church should be doing. And sure enough, there have been long, sorry seasons in church history where the church had no real idea of precisely what it was trying to accomplish. And as a result, it accomplished everything other than what it was supposed to be doing. But 2 Timothy is Paul essentially saying, I'm done. I'm finished. I've been beaten, shipwrecked, flogged, lashed, starved, stoned probably to death. But I don't think I'm getting out of this one. I think I'm finished. This is my swan song. It now falls to you. And this is what the church is to be about. This is what the church is to be doing. This is 2 Timothy. Super important letter. 2 Timothy consists of four chapters, and every one of those chapters includes three elements. The same three elements appear in all four chapters. In other words, this is the marching orders for the church. This is what she is to do. All four chapters include these three elements. Number one, the Word of God. The Word of God. We are to teach it and guard it. We are to protect it and preach it. It is central, it is core, it is bedrock, it is foundational, it is baseline. It is the thing around which we gather. This is not just something that we do in our church in Tyler to say, well, we needed a, a name that started with a B and Bethel and Bible or alliterative and hey, that's fun. No, 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 no. It really is. It speaks to our ethos, our philosophy, our strategy, what we believe about the church. It is to be gathered around God's word. Number two, a call to suffer. Ugh. I kind of like that first one a lot more than that second one. By the way, it's like the worst church marketing campaign ever. Come and suffer! It's terrible. Welcome to Bethel. Come and die. And then we're going to pass the plate. Doesn't usually work that way. That's why we don't invest a whole lot of money in marketing. But that's the deal. <laughs> Gather around God's word and we are called to suffer. Third element, there is a day of evaluation coming. All four chapters will have all three of these elements. There is a day of evaluation coming. Every single one of us, and in particular church leaders, we will have to stand before the risen Lord Jesus Christ whose eyes are like blazing fire. Church leaders will say, gulp, this is my church. And I mean your church. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I mean your church. But this is how I was their under-shepherd. We will stand and give an account for how we were under-shepherds of the flock. I will also do that as a father and a husband. 
There is a day of evaluation coming. How did we steward the treasure that God gave? Now, the Christian should not fear the second coming of Christ as if there is still sin yet to be judged. Oh, it's not that kind of judgment. Praise be to God. Woohoo! That day's already passed 2,000 years ago at Calvary. We do not fear the second coming of Christ, but we live knowing that it is going to occur. There is a day of evaluation coming. So Paul is writing his final letter. This is his Flanders Field. So we're just going to walk through chapter 1 here. We'll talk about it as we go. Now remember, 2 Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is the largest church in the Roman province of Asia. It is on the western border of modern-day Turkey. You might remember that Paul encounters Timothy on his first missionary journey in a place called Lystra, which is in the area of Galatia. And he finds Timothy and... Uh, well, well, he circumcises Timothy. This old man with bad eyesight circumcises Timothy. Greatest act of faith in Scripture was Timothy. I'm just going to put that out there. He circumcises Timothy and takes him with him and makes him his protege. And they do all of these different missionary journeys. And Paul deposits Timothy at Ephesus. Paul preaches and teaches there six days a week for three years. It's a great church full of amazing doctrine. We know that the apostle John the revelator. He actually ministers in the church at Ephesus for some time. After he's returned from exile on the island of Patmos, he goes back to the church at Ephesus. And at the age of 100 years plus, they continue to carry him in on a chair so that he can preach. This is why we get young deacons here, because one day they're going to be carrying my sorry carcass up here. <laughs> we think that maybe even Mary, mother of Jesus, was taken to Ephesus by the Apostle John. So this is the setting. It's the largest church. It's the most influential church in the cultural center of the Eastern Roman Empire. And Timothy, whose name means God-honorer, was beginning to flounder. Timothy had become timid, which is why Paul writes 2 Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Paul starts off by establishing his authority. Why does Paul have to start with authority? Well, because he knows that this letter is going to be read not just by Timothy, but it's going to be read to the entire congregation. Does Timothy need to be reminded that Paul is an apostle? Well, no. And yes. Paul wants to remind Timothy that when Paul speaks, when Paul writes, it is the very words of God. And Paul's going to say some hard things to Timothy. Paul's going to say some encouraging things to Timothy. And Paul wants Timothy to know that this is God speaking to you. See, Timothy had developed what uh, NFL quarterbacks call happy feet. He had dropped back in the pocket one too many times only to be met by seven linebackers with eating disorders who just destroyed him. And so now Timothy drops back and he's just getting creamed at every turn. He's, there, there's starting to be problems in the church, both inside the church and outside the church. And so Timothy has developed a tentative timidity. This can happen. It can happen to an athlete. We know that it can happen to a soldier. It can certainly happen to a minister. About that 47th negative email, you just start getting tentative and you're not going to want to put it out there like you used to. About the 23rd negative budget meeting, you start going, mm, we need to build walls and protect what we have. And you begin to become tentative and timid. And Paul says, not on my watch. 
I am an apostle by the will of God. I am sent by God, not because of what I think about him, but because of what he thinks about me, Timothy. Now, listen up and pay attention, lad, because I'm about to give you some truth. This is who I am. That's his introduction. He says to Timothy, my beloved child. Now, clearly, that's not biological. We know that Timothy is encountered by Paul in Lystra as, as an, an adult. Uh, this is his way of saying, Timothy, I'm for you. I believe in you. I trust you. I am with you. It's a term of endearment. Grace, mercy, and peace. That's interesting. Every other pastoral or every other epistle that Paul writes is grace and peace. You cannot have peace unless you've received grace. But in the pastorals, it's a unique greeting. In 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, it's always grace and mercy and peace. Why is that? Because Paul's writing to the leaders of the church and he knows that they need mercy. Because we talk ourselves into cul-de-sacs all the time and we, we don't want to get what we deserve in those cases. And mercies has the idea of God's compassion and God's enablement. Leaders in the church do what they do because they have received God's mercies, his compassion and his enablement. May this come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The ministry is rooted in God the Father and in Jesus the Christ. And as we'll see later in verse 14, in the Holy Spirit as well. In other words, Timothy, what's true of me is true of you. You are a pastor. You are a leader. Not because of what you think about God, but because of what God thinks about you. Not because of some human strategy of cunning and deception. No, 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 no. I don't know how you think you got to be a pastor, Timothy, but it's because God said so. We tell our elders all the time, I don't know how you think you got to be an elder, but our sovereign God knew from the dawn of creation that you would be one of the big brothers in this congregation. So live and lead and guide and guard accordingly. Well, verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. There's, there's nothing between me and God that would inhibit or hinder my prayer. Timothy, you are on the front of my mind all the time. Timothy, I have a little hand-sketched picture of you on my refrigerator. Timothy, I am thinking of you. You're my favorite. I thank God whom I serve. I thank God for you, Timothy. I know you have developed a timidity. I know that you have developed a tentativeness, but I am still thankful for you. This is good leadership with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul's gonna do something really interesting here. He's going to establish his credibility. This is true of me, my heritage, my trajectory, my backstory. This is true of me. And then he's gonna brilliantly say, and it's also true of you, Timothy. Paul mentions his ancestors, and many people for many years have assumed that that means his Jewish roots, that he is a Jew of Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he says in Philippians 3, and that that refers to his people, possibly. But a more careful reading, I think, lends us to think that this is not just talking about the Jewish people, because clearly the Jewish people at Paul's writing stood under a condemnation because they rejected the Messiah. Now, I think what Paul's more than likely having in view here is his own father and grandfather. Now we know that Paul was a Roman citizen. That's interesting. Oftentimes we'll talk about that. Well, just because he was born in Cilicia, in Tarsus, uh, he's a Roman citizen. No. Jewish people were a vassal conquered people. They were not granted citizenship simply because of where they were born. Apparently, 
Something happened with Paul's father or his grandfather, that they were men of stature and they did something, we don't know what, they did something so remarkable that the Roman Empire gives them Roman citizenship, which was a high honor to a Jewish man. And because of that, Paul, when he is born, is a Roman citizen. And that Roman citizenship saved him from at least two severe beatings, including the one at the end of his life. Paul says, listen, my father and grandfather, I think were notable men of renown. That's my trajectory. They led me in a godly way. And Timothy, what's true of me is also true of you. He says, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. The word there is your non-hypocritical faith. Timothy, you're beginning to feel timid and you're, in the, you're out shopping for masks to be a hypocrite, but don't do it. I am reminded that your faith is not hypocritical. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Eunice means victorious. And now... I am sure, dwells in you as well. This is good leadership. Holding a crown over Timothy's head, saying, I know you don't really feel much like it. You've grown timid, but Timothy, I'm telling you, I know your grandmother. I know your mother. I know what they taught you. I know that this faith dwells in you as well. He speaks words of definition into him. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, Timothy, everything else might seem like it's falling apart. But do not merely try to find what's broken and fix it. That never works. Find the flicker. Find the flame. Where's the pilot light? And then fan that into a roaring fire that consumes the dross of everything else. Incidentally, that is a great principle of life. Do not merely try to find what's broken and fix it. You will exhaust yourself. What's working? Where's the pilot light? resource and fuel that and allow that to consume the stuff that is not. That's how we were made. A great leadership principle, a great life principle here from Paul. Find what it is and fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, I know you're beginning to wonder, did I make this whole thing up? Did God really call me? Timothy, I laid my hands on you and confirmed and affirmed that you have the gift of God. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When we begin to find ourselves timid and tentative in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, dare I say our churches, that spirit of timidity, of fear, is not from God. Surprise, it comes from someplace else. So we can try to spiritualize and go, ooh, ooh, I've got to check in my spirit. I don't think I'm supposed to share the gospel. Uh, that's not coming from the Lord Jesus. That's coming from something else. Some of us, you're so pistol whipped, you've got such bruised ribs, you tried to share the gospel with somebody at your workplace and you got shot down and called fool. So you said, that's it, I'll never do it again. I'll trust the preacher to do it because he's a professional. Not so, I'm actually not that good at it. So it's still back on you. Some of you tried to share the gospel with a family member and you got rebuffed and you were told, I don't ever want to hear that from you again. And that person went to a hospital bed and ultimately to a grave and it bruised you, and you're timid. But that spirit of timidity is not of the Lord. Oh, no, no, no. He has given us power. What is that? That is his spirit who goes before, who prepares in advance contexts into which we will step where he will do power, power, wonder-working power. They should write a song about that. <laughs> that is one of the resources that God gives us is his spirit, 
Not only that, he gives us love, that we get to be with God's people. We get the opportunity to move our lives to others, to begin to view other people as my life for you, not your life for me. God's given us his people in addition to his spirit and self-control. The word is discipline, where we get to read God's word, to think God's thoughts after him. We begin to know what God knows and want what God wants so that what we ought to do begins to be what we want to do. You see, the three resources God gives us, his spirit, his people, and his word, that is from the Lord, not a spirit of timidity and tentativeness. No, Timothy, back on track. This is what a good older mentor does. Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed. (laughs) In other words, stop it. Timothy, I've heard, I know that you are now beginning to be ashamed. Do not be ashamed, because you are, of the testimony about our Lord. Man, I feel this. Apparently, somehow, Timothy was beginning to want to soften the message about this Jewish man who lived, died, was buried, and rose again and is alive forevermore and has ascended to the right hand of God and has sent his spirit. Timothy's beginning to try to make that maybe a little bit more of a seeker-sensitive message. Like, Jesus was awesome and stuff, and you should totally, like, do good and eat avocados. (laughs) So, you know, then, then... No, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and... Stop being ashamed of me, Paul says. Apparently, here in verse 8, nor of me, his prisoner. Timothy was even wanting to begin to distance himself from Paul, his mentor. Because now, as far as the Roman Empire is concerned, Paul's merely a common criminal who is receiving persecution and suffering. And Timothy's going, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. That, that, that whole thing, you know, Paul kind of went around the bend on some things. I don't know him anymore. He's not a part of this church. He's, he's out there in Rome. That's across the water. Not my problem. Paul says, no, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But, here it is, the imperative. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Choose to enter into it, to willingly engage. Decide in advance because the gospel is worth it. Because God's word is worth it. And when I see people tearing apart God's word, not physically, but verbally, I can't stand idly by. I must engage. Not usually with violence because I'm a tremendous sissy, but I have to say something. Because the church is called to guard and protect God's word. To Enter into suffering if need be because the gospel and God's word is worth my suffering. And should I die, should I actually be martyred for the cause? That's okay. There's worse things that have happened. There are worse things than death. There are better things than human flourishing. Paul says, no, Timothy, do not forget your place, good lad. Enter into suffering. Share in it with me for the gospel by the power of God. The great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem people to himself and to one another is the greatest story ever told. It's worth you suffering inconvenience, awkwardness, financial harm, perhaps even sickness and death. Timothy, mount up. Fight for the faith. I pass you the torch, Timothy. I'm not making it out of this one. It's on you. Fight for the faith. This God, verse 9, who saved us and called us. He summonsed us. It was not an ask. It was a directive. 
He summoned us to a holy calling, not because of our works. We didn't figure this stuff out. You see, humankind will never devise a system that condemns him. Let me say that again. We will never devise a system of belief that will send us to hell. We'll never come up with that system. And so God does. Every other system you can claw and scratch your way out of it, not this one. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, not because we were super clever, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he began in us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I love verses 9 and 10. Paul says, this was the plan from way back. Chapter 1, verse 9, is the blueprint of God's plan of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 9, is the blueprint of how God's going to redeem man to himself. And verse 10 is the enactment. Verse 9 is the (laughs) how-to. Verse 10 is the just did. Verse 10 says, And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This was God's plan for ages past. Paul says, Oh my goodness, it's happened. This is that. God's done it. What was his, in his mind in eternity past has occurred in our lifetime. And what, not only did he come, but he abolished the things that make men timid. He engaged, he obliterated the enemies that make people tentative and timid. How did he do that? By abolishing death. Death is defeated. Oh, it's inevitable we will all still die but we need not fear it. It's merely a separation of our sin nature. Yay! Death is defeated already and not yet. And the last enemy to be finally put underfoot will be death and brought life and immortality. Everybody wants to live forever. Nobody knows how. I read an article just this week, really fascinating. In Japan, when people are terminally sick, They will not be told that they have a severe disease, nor why they are having surgery. They're simply taken back to surgery, and it happens, and they come out, and they may be missing a part of their body. They may be missing a part of their their brain or something like that if it was a brain cancer, and they're never told why. And a Western journalist asked them, why? Why aren't they told? They have a right to know. And the Japanese doctor very forthrightly said, We in Japan are not as hopeful as you in the West. Which I think is interesting, his perspective. He says, in the West, everybody believes there's life after death. But in Japan, we have no hope. Death is the end. And so if we tell them that they might die, we lose them. So we just don't tell them. Because you see, everybody in the West has hope. Which I think, if only that were so. And yet, as our culture, as our society drifts closer and closer to assuming that it's merely nothing but a fade to black after death, there's a hopelessness. But not so. God has defeated death. He has given life and light and immortality, as is proven by the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For this message, for this truth, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher. Timothy... This was not my idea. The risen Lord Jesus wasn't giving me advice nor a suggestion. This was a decree. And by the way, the same is said of you, Timothy. Be like me, Timothy, which is why I suffer willingly as I do. Verse 12, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. There it is. There is a day coming and I will be guarded until 
He simply takes me home. I know him. I know the sound of his voice. I know what he likes. I know what he doesn't like. I know. And Timothy, I'm not ashamed. Timothy, I'm your, I'm your mentor. Be like me. Verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words. I love that word, sound. It's where we get our word for hygiene. It's whole, it's clean, it's well, it's fully orbed. Follow the pattern of the sound words. I just, just got to say, I love 2 Timothy. And the reason I love 2 Timothy is because of a man, the late, great Dr. Stan Toussaint, who I sat in his classroom and he opened 2 Timothy and he taught me 2 Timothy and I'd never heard anything like it in my life. I thought, I just want to sit in this room and listen to this man speak 2 Timothy. He might have even been asleep while he was teaching. He was, that, he was that good. He may have been just totally, but he taught me 2 Timothy. And I thought, one day, one day I'm going to do it like you did, Dr. T. Well, he's gone now. And so I was just going to tell you, pretty much for the rest of this entire series, what you're getting is me following the sound pattern of the words of Dr. Stan Toussaint, who got it from Dr. Pentecost, who got it from somebody else, who ultimately got it from the Apostle Paul, because that's what we do in the church, do you see? Nothing new. So thank you, Dr. T. You can't hear me right now, but that's okay. We follow the sound pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's the sphere in which we do ministry in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You see, our whole Trinitarian truth is brought to bear on how we do church. Who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Be vigilant, be diligent, guard it, Timothy. It is under assault. Verse 15, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. <laughs> Whoa, I don't know what these two dudes did, but for 2,000 years, ain't nobody been named Phagellus since, right? <laughs> these guys get immortalized for 2,000 years as how not to be. Now, clearly, even the Apostle Paul is prone to discouragement. No, not everybody in the Roman province of Asia turned their backs on him. But it certainly feels that way as he's locked up in a dungeon alone in Rome. His first Roman imprisonment was in, under house arrest. He's in a rented apartment, but not this time. He's in a dungeon. And clearly not everybody in the Roman province of Asia has turned their backs on him. We know that there were some that were looking in on him. This is Paul saying, listen, there is a tendency, there is a gravity to our depravity. People want to scatter including these two guys. We don't know what they did, but here they are recorded for two millennia. However, verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. He came to Rome from Ephesus and he sought me out, which was not easy to find a prisoner locked up in shame in chains in a dungeon in Rome. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord. May the Lord grant mercy from the Lord. I love that. On that day. There is a day coming when all of us will see the risen Lord Jesus. And you know, you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is God's word. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1. Well, there are many, many, many things that I could pull out of this as Paul writes his Flanders Field, encouraging Timothy and by extension the church to fight for the faith. Do not be timid. 
In the book of Revelation, we're told that at the end of the age, there will be those who are ultimately cast out. And it's a strange list of characters. It is the sexually immoral, the deceivers, and the cowards, which always bothers me because, candidly, I'm kind of cowardly. But there's no place for that. The Spirit of God is courage. It is boldness. It is conviction. It is assertiveness, not aggression. But we are not to be timid. We are to take what has been deposited and use it for God's glory, trusting that the Spirit will go before us. And so, I could pull out a lot from this passage, but just in the interest of time, three quick implications of what we can glean from this text. Number one, faith is not a matter of feeling. Timothy was feeling sort of timid. He was feeling tentative. And he was beginning to question his faith. But faith is not a matter of feeling. So often we try to determine how spiritually well we are by how good we feel. Well, do I feel forgiven? Then I must be forgiven. But what if I don't feel forgiven? Am I not? That's terrible. That's a horrible way to live our lives. Do I ever feel like confessing sin right there in the moment? Um, No, hardly ever. Okay, scratch that. Never but I'm allowing my feelings to dictate what I do. When I lag behind and I wait to confess my sin that I know I'm guilty of, I am demonstrating that I don't fully get the doctrine of grace and mercy, that God stands ready to forgive instantaneously. Faith is not a matter of our feeling. Some things are true regardless of how I feel about them. And so I get to be reminded by God's word, by God's spirit, and hopefully his people of what is true and what is truth. And the more I begin to do that, the more that happens, as James K.A. Smith says in his book, You Are What You Love, we begin to build in these patterns, what he calls these little liturgies. We begin to practice this stuff, and the more we get in a habit of loving what is true, then our feelings will finally catch up. We actually train ourselves on what to love. There's no question that we all go through seasons of doubt and darkness and discouragement. And so this text 2 Timothy is here to remind us and to challenge us to decide in advance how we're going to respond, never in the heat of the moment or at the crossroads of discouragement. We're all going to go through it. And our human tendency is to say, well, I'm just going to bear down and grip my teeth and handle it. But this book violates that. It says, no, no, no. Remember those from whom you learned. Remember the truth and build your life on that. We have to be bold and courageous and to fight for the faith. Number two, this is a quick one. Live with the end in mind. Live with the end in mind. Not once, but twice in this chapter, we hear Paul at the end of his life refer to until the day, until that day. It's increasingly real, and it's close for him. You know what? Who knows? Perhaps even for us as well. We are not to fear the second coming of the Lord, but neither are we to wait idly and do nothing. We are going to see him, and we will give an account for how we stewarded his great treasure housed and kept in these jars of clay. So perhaps maybe there's a a daily trigger to remind you that he really is returning soon. I don't know what you do. Do you put a sticky note on your bathroom mirror? Do you, uh, every time you see a cloud that looks like a turtle with a rock on its head, you think, oh yes, Jesus is coming. I have to live this day like it's my last. Live with the end in mind. Thirdly, and this is a big one, God encourages people with the example of people. 
So many of the times, the way God encourages people is by pointing us to other people. It's been said that nobody trusts Christ until they trust a Christian. I'm not sure that that's correct, but I've not seen it to be not the case. Nobody trusts Christ until they trust a Christian. The church is supposed to be the place where we all get to look at all these other people who are being ever increasingly transformed glory on glory as they become like the one that they behold, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's what church is supposed to be. I get to look at you and see, my goodness, she is being transformed ever increasingly into the likeness of the one that she beholds. And I get to see that over and over again. That's what church is supposed to be. And by the way, if you don't know anybody like that here, you think, I don't know of a single soul that that sounds like. Come and talk to me. I will point you out about 100 plus people that that's true of, praise God, at this campus alone. They're here. They're glowing if you have eyes to see. I'll be happy to connect you with that. There have been libraries of books that have been written lately that the biggest threat to the survival of the church in our century, in our time, in our culture is that fewer younger generations have people to whom they can look who are willing to share their lives. Just me and Jesus and I'm glowing and stuff, but I haven't had any time for anybody else. Danger, danger. Timothy had Onesiphorus. He had Paul. I wonder who you have. Well, I want you to know that we are ratcheting up our mentoring program downtown like crazy. Dana Johnson and Jana Jameson, I call them Dana and Jana, Dana, Jana, we're saying Dana, they are absolutely killing it. They are connecting women with other women and they are making sure that there are small pockets of small togetherness. And they're doing an amazing job of connecting women with other women at this campus. Not only that, but men who, boy, let me just tell you, trying to get men to actually meet together is about as hard as you can imagine without raw meat and a football. But we have men's groups meeting on this campus just about every single day of the week except for Saturday and Sunday, and that's because we're kind of busy on Sundays. There is an opportunity for you to get involved in the lives of other people. You are invited. You are without excuse. Heck, our own Tom Ramey even leads one of those. That's good stuff. Now, and in the same way, we're going to celebrate Memorial Day in a couple weeks here. And you may even see the annual pinning of the poppy as a reminder of World War I veterans. I want you to think about one person in your life who was a Onesiphorus to you. Someone who found you, who refreshed you, who encouraged you. I remember a guy named Johnny Gilman, one of my dad's best friends, who would just take me out, drive me around in his pickup, put me to work in his, in his oil field, and he'd just pour wisdom into me. He was an Onesiphorus. I wonder if there's someone that you can think of this spring as you see a flower, a poppy perhaps, that's one who went before me and propped me up. And then I want to challenge you to pray about how God might use you to be an Onesiphorus. And I mean, no, really. What if you all prayed and God brought someone across your path. You don't have to go out diligently looking for somebody. In fact, we have laws in the state against that. But if you would simply pray that God would bring someone across your path that would say, man, I, I would love to grab a cup of coffee with you. And you would forego your knee-jerk impulse to go, mm -mm, I'm very busy and important, no time. To go, hmm, you know what, let's do that. What if you got to be an Onesiphorus to somebody? It's what... It's what Paul prescribes for Timothy. And for some of you, this is the obvious day where you get to thank your mother and your grandmother for introducing you to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Moms are good at this. Moms 
equip us, they pull us up, and they say, fight for the faith. And I thank my mom for doing that. To this day, she is wearing the sweet Lord Jesus smooth out by praying nonstop for me. And the moment she doesn't, you'll know about it, all right? So thank you to our moms for doing that. Our Eunices, who are victorious, you matter. Fight for the faith. See, the reason the Apostle Paul was willing to go to his death for the sake of the gospel is because he had been with and seen Jesus. He understood the worth of Christ and the gospel. But see, you and I are third generation Christians. We were never with Jesus bodily in person. And so like the believers in Ephesus, we get to hear and to heed the testimony of the apostles. And they tell us that Jesus, the Christ, He is the Messiah. He fought the good fight. He finished the race so that we wouldn't have to carry that burden. Jesus had his own Flanders field. He went to the cross and he finished his race. And with failing hands, he handed off his torch to guys like the Apostle Paul and Peter and John, who handed it down to Timothy, who handed it down to Polycarp and down through the ages. And now here we are. Timidity is never consistent with the new nature that God has given us. He has given us power. And so now we get to be a church that continues to receive and deposit until that day. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I just want to invite you, encourage you, draw you, beckon you, beseech you to believe, to rethink your thinking. Perhaps you used to think this or that about Jesus that he was a good guy, a swell teacher, maybe a nice rabbi, perhaps even a pathetic martyr. But no, we believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, who pays the demands of sin, which is death, who fulfills the demands of the law, which is his perfect righteousness. And he offers that to you and to me freely. And not only that, he equips us to leave lives of value and meaning and significance and influence and impact and worth here until we die. He gives us a new spirit to want to do that. And then when he does return, he rewards us for the spirit that he gave us. (laughs) That's quite a deal. It's the greatest deal in the cosmos. So I invite you to believe. And for the rest of us, perhaps you've been a Christian since right after Samson met Delilah. Good for you. But perhaps you've developed a comfortable timidity. And you haven't spoken about your Lord, your Savior, your King, your Champion in many, many years. I will contend that it's not because you're afraid, it's perhaps because you're empty. So I pray that this spring season, through the book of 2 Timothy, you will be filled with His Spirit, with His Word, surrounded by His people, that you will have courage and boldness to simply be squeezed as His truth pours out of you. May it be in this church. Fight for the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for who You are, for what You have done to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and how he finished his race. We thank you for Timothy, his timid protege, that you encouraged by your word, by your people, and by your spirit. Father, I pray for anyone this morning, a son or daughter, a brother or sister, a mom or a dad, an aunt or an uncle, a friend, a neighbor, that you would lead us ever increasingly into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus. Father, for those of us that are here and we know who we are, who have been characterized by timidity and simply wanting to go be with Jesus one day when we die, Father, would you remind us of the call to suffer, to be outposts of your kingdom in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities. 
so that Jesus could be made a really big deal of. Lord Jesus, you are worth that. We pray all these things the only way we can in your name and for your sake and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us this morning as we start 2 Timothy. If you missed our first service, you got to miss us dedicating three families and their children. It was glorious. Check that out. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and we will be dismissed. Now may our God, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work and may you have courage and boldness to do so. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.